Hello everybody, welcome to our APGRD podcast, uh, Staging the Archive. So this is linked in with our Archive in 100 Objects project in which we're isolating particular objects of interest from our compendious archive here in Oxford and uh, bringing some experts in to discuss them. Uh, so for our first episode, we're going to be looking at two items from the archive. So two photographs from a 1914 performance of the Agamemnon held at the Ancient Theatre of Syracuse. And I'm joined by Professor Oliver Taplin, who is Emeritus Professor at the University and co-founded the archive back in 1996, as well as Giovanna De Martino, who is lecturer in classics at St Anne's, uh, recently completed her DPhil here at Oxford and actually uh, was a frequent visitor to the archive during that process. So welcome to both of you. My first book a long time ago, my first big book was on Aeschylus and these pictures are of a production of Aeschylus Agamemnon um, and uh, particularly emphasised the importance of performance for the interpretation of tragedy. And since then I've gone on to develop an interest in performances in modern times or more recent times um, and also mm. an interest in how uh, the theatre spread out from Athens to other parts of the Greek world. So that's two ways in which I've got a special interest in in uh, this performance in Syracuse, Syracusa, in Sicily, um, in 1914. Yeah, and I, as 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 Claire mentioned, I wrote my doctorate on Aeschylus's reception in Italy. So this is particularly dear to me, um, and I fairly familiar with the material. I wrote a chapter on Aeschylus's Agamemnon in 1914, the beginning of. Uh, the festival, um, the probably um, the the, uh, the longest running modern festival of ancient drama in the modern world, uh, which uh, began precisely with this performance of Aeschylus's Agamemnon in 1914. And what we and now is every year. And now is every yeah, year. You, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Every two years, but now it's every year. Now yeah. it's every year, and they do comedy as well. Uh, so they used to do just tragedy, uh, but now it's um, yeah. Um, so the two photos, photographs that we're looking at, um, the first one is, um, so it's the Atredae Palace um, and the continuation actually on the left of the Atredae Palace we've got uh, a reproduction of the Mycenaean Lion Gate. The Lion Gate at Mycenae, yes, yeah. yes in, in, which is in um, the Peloponnese in the north, the eastern uh, Peloponnese and was excavated some 20 years before before this. Uh, very famous image, a huge, absolutely vast triangular piece of stone with two lions, mm. uh, which is why it's the Lion Gate. It had actually had been visible before it was excavated, um, but it was sort of buried to halfway up. Mm -hmm. And there it is, so there we are with a, a monument dating from something like um, 600 or 700 years before Aeschylus as the as the setting for this play. Yeah, yeah. and this was not um, a new way of uh, performing Agamemnon. The uh, the the, uh, the scenery um, repro reproducing Mycenae was very much um, part of a, a, a wider European reawakening and about Aeschylus and about Agamemnon. It had been staged in Oxford, in Sydney. Um, in Cambridge um, at Harvard and it had um, as a scenery uh, Schliemann's new or newly discovered uh, or rediscovered Mycenae. 
Schle so Schliemann was a very wealthy uh, German uh, um, amateur, you might say, but who became totally fascinated by Homer and the world mm -hmm. of Homer. So he was the man who, if if you can envisage the golden mask that's in the museum in Athens that he dug up at Mycenae, and when he dug it up, he said, "I have looked upon the face of Agamemnon." In fact. It, chronologically it's totally right. different era from Agamemnon but that was the kind of romance that uh, and it's still known as Agamemnon still known as the last yeah. of Agamemnon yes <laughs> yeah yes. <laughs> yeah absolutely and it was a particular I think because it represented a particular Aeschylus that and a particular new way of looking at Greece and of, of reproducing a certain sort of titanic and primitive um, kind of Greece um, very much oppo or, or opposite to uh, the neoclassical Greece that had been um, the scenery, so to speak, of uh, uh, the, the 18th century. Um, so this was this was about a, a completely new and very archaeological Greece that was on stage, which had found in the founder, in one of the most important financial sponsor um, of the festival, uh, Mario Tommaso Gargallo, and the philologist, um, the Italian philologist who. Um, collaborated with Mario Tommaso Gagallo at the production of of the Agamemnon, Ettore Romagnoli. Um, so had found in in both of them uh, had found in them an opportunity. Or an opportunity, yeah. yeah. Had found in them an opportunity uh, to um, be staged um, um, in Sicily. So mm. perhaps I ought to say something at this point about why in Sicily. You know, why why say, have yeah. we got this um, this very uh, Elaborate and uh, mm. expensive production going on in Sicily. And why 1914 as well? Why, yes, yeah. yes. And why, but, but, but why in Sicily and why not in Greece? Yes. Um, why not uh, at Mycenae or why not at mm. Athens, which is where the Oresteia was first um, performed um, um, and directed by Aeschylus himself in 458 uh, BC or BCE? And the answer is that Syracuse in Sicily, which we think of as in Italy, was one of the greatest cities of the whole Greek world. Mm. Um, the Greeks, in a huge um, time of spreading of their culture and of their economics, um, particularly in the 8th and 7th centuries, founded cities uh, all over the place, uh, around the Mediterranean, or at least around the Eastern Mediterranean, around the Black Sea, around the coast of what we now think of as Turkey and, and Lebanon, Beirut, for example, Greek city, uh, Cyrene in Libya, and perhaps as much as anywhere on the southern coast of Italy and the eastern coast of Sicily. So there were mighty wealthy Greek cities and Syracuse is said to have been founded back in 700 and, I um, may not get this quite right, but 730 something I think it was, um, by the Corinthians. Uh, so it had been there uh, before the time of Aeschylus, it had been there for, for um, had been there for more than 200 years, it had been there for two, 250 years. Um, and then moving on from that, so there we are with this great Greek city uh, on the coast of Sicily. And when we get down to the 5th century in the era of Aeschylus, uh, he was the, the first major figure of the production of tragedy. And he actually went to Sicily. Uh, in fact, he died in Sicily. His tomb was in Sicily when he died in 456, only two years after the Orosire. And his play, he had come to the attention of the great ruler of uh, Syracuse, uh, Hieron. So Aeschylus was actually commissioned by Hieron to compose a tragedy. 
in honor of a new city that he founded after a great, uh, a great eruption of Mount Etna. Um, and the very first record we have of a tragedy being performed outside Athens was indeed in Syracuse. This is part of the key to why Syracuse is such an important place. We're told that Aeschylus's great tragedy, the Persians, which we've got, which survives, was also performed um, two years later um, in Syracuse uh, with the patronage of Hieron. So the first place beyond Athens that we know that tragedy spread to is Syracuse. Whether it was actually in this very theatre uh, remains something that our archaeologists um, and scholars continue to discuss. But if it wasn't in this very theatre, it was somewhere pretty nearby. Oh. Uh, so Syracuse has a historic place in the history of, of Aeschylus and in the history of Greek civilization, because very far from being some kind of remote one-horse outpost, uh, it was one of the great, most prosperous, most advanced cities of the Greek world. Um, famous, for example, for its uh, participating in the chariot races at the Olympic Games, producing the most beautiful coins, some people think the most beautiful coins that have ever been produced in the, in the history of coinage. Uh, so that's why, we, that's why we're here in Sicily, mm. um, with special interest in Aeschylus. Yeah, and and the in in 1914, the tragedian's exceptional relationship with Sicily was remarked upon by the local press as well. They prepared the world for as they were preparing the world for the exciting events of 1914. So many newspaper articles they um, recalled Aeschylus's visit to Syracuse and his celebration of um, Hieron's court. It was felt that Aeschylus was uh, making a return to Syracuse or better, that he was returning to celebrate Syracuse again. The performance of his tragedy was redefined as, a, as, as an evocation of um, uh, the old one. So Agamemnon was returning to the stage in Sicily and was felt as not just the most Sicilian um, tragedian of all, but he was also felt as a very modern tragedian because of Schliemann's newly dis mm. rediscovered um, Mycenae. So this is, this is the setting uh, and this is the historical period in which this new Greece gets re-established or established as, as, as modern or as a new, as, as a new modernity. And um, what um, you were saying about, um, what Oliver was saying about the, um, the civilization that um, was invoked when or that was um, developed um, in ancient uh, in in ancient um, Sicily was very much a product of and it, again this was recalled and picked up again by the press in um, in 1914 and then later on was very much the combination of um, the native um, Sicilians or the non-Greek Sicilians uh, and the the ancient Greeks. And it was felt that the very combination of these two peoples um, gave birth to uh, a, an incredible uh, or an incredibly advanced society, um, which um, uh, the Sicilians in 1914 felt um, that they were uh, the continuation of. Yeah. Keep on talking about 1914. Of course, what people associate 1914 with above all is the outbreak of the First World War. How does this, how does this relate, do you know, in time to uh, the beginning of the war? This is, um, so the performance was on, um, in 16 April 1914, so th about three months before um, the break of the war. Right. I think it's very striking that um, 
later on, so in 1921, when um, the second performance of this um, festival was put on, the Quefri, the second play of Aeschylus' or of Aeschylus' trilogy, um, was put on. It was um, the, the 1914 Agamemnon was recalled by the press as um, a pro very prophetic uh, play mm -hmm. because of Cassandra prophesizing about mm -hmm. the break of the war and because it, um, an actor in particular had died during the war, the messenger. Right. So it was what, the actor of the messenger. The actor, oh, yeah. Right. So it was felt it was felt as as being very prophetic, and at the same time, uh, looking because it the Agamemnon talks about the absence that the war creates and the absence mm. of Agamemnon, in fact. Um, so it's it's uh, with if you look back in 1921, if you look back to the performance of 1914, you can see the striking prophetic power that this mm. production had. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but if there's there's another interwar performance, but a bit later in the 30s, um, again of the Agamemnon, is that is that correct? So again, are there are there any kind of points of comparison between between those? You think there's a the time passing? Yeah. So there's there's another production in 1930 of the Agamemnon, and that's the first production that um, had been organised by the new um, mm. fascist committee. And, and then there's another Agamemnon, which actually um, doesn't, in, in terms of the scenery, doesn't recall at all the 1914 mm. Agamemnon. The 1930 Agamemnon scenery recalls the 1914 a lot more than yeah. the 1948 one does. Uh, but the 1948 comes after World War II, um, and it comes as a completely um, break, uh, or complete, sorry, as a complete break uh, from the fascist way mm. of performing great tragedy. So the 1948 is very historically rooted, whilst the 1930, um, the 1930 scenery uh, was presented as a uh, blurred um, reproduction of the 1914, where you could see the resemblance mm. with the 1914 archaeological scenery, but on pur pur purposely the, the new fascist um, committee had wanted to um, make the audience feel like that was a completely um, different mm. and a historical world. Yeah. So you can almost trace um, the, the the political history of Europe, particularly the political history of Italy, with the through, through the productions <laughs> of Agamemnon. Yeah. Specifically, you've got 1914, just before the terrible uh, mm. war um, engulfs Europe. 1921, that looks back on that and. Uh, brings it back again but in a in a new world 1930 that comes with the uh the the rise of fascism uh in, in Italy that will so dominate the next uh, 20 years um but then 1948 a break again a much more historic am i right much more historicizing uh, much less uh, tapping into contemporary propaganda. Yeah. Mm. And then 1960, no, was it 1959? 1960. 1960, um, uh, a, a, another important production um, and a sign of, uh, of, of the culture of that time and the culture of the 60s because the translation was by the great uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. Absolutely. Uh, famous for, particularly for his films, of course. Mm. Yes. Can you yeah. say something about that? Yes, absolutely. The 1960, you're completely right. Um, um, the 1960 production of the Oresthaya, so um, 
Agamemnon comes back as part of the trilogy, which is the first time that the whole trilogy um, after 1948 um, is being put on. 1960 signals a, a very important moment, not just in, in, in the festival, but in Italy um, more generally, because it's the first time, or one of the very first times, that um, Aeschylus is translated or that a, a performance of an ancient Greek play is done by someone who's not a philologist. And that is unheard of. Um, we had Philologist, had, but meaning classical scholar. Classical scholar. Uh, yes, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, we had had translations of uh, non-classical scholars before, but um, uh, never before had a translation of um, a play um, had so um, s such a, a, a popularity. Um, as um, Pasolini's translation of the Oresteia. And the press did um, notice that. And they, um, it, it, was, it, was, it was very very much appreciated. Um, and it signaled a very important break with the tradition, uh, not just in Syracuse again, but with the whole tradition of putting on grip plays in Italy. And the poet um, um, Pier Paolo Pasolini had been on the spotlight for different reasons before, um, so his personality as well attracted lots of lots of people. And of course, the um, the stage direction as well, um, as well as the main actor, so Vittorio Gasman and uh, Lucignani, they uh, were very much on the. Um, at the vanguard, avant-garde, yes. yeah, 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 of a new way of staging of staging plays, and again, they their staging was very much appreciated, very mod, felt very modern, very much looking forward, um, and very Marxist, yeah, mm. yes, yeah. uh, because it it used the interpretation of um, uh, Aeschylus's Oresteia by um, George Thompson, yeah, and I mean ever since then. Um, the productions at Syracuse, uh, at Syracuse, have employed, uh, have tried to pick the leading, uh, most innovative, most interesting directors from the whole of Italy. So it's not a little local festival, though it has mm. very significant Sicilian colouring. Um, it is a national festival, shown on national television, trying to uh, commission the very best uh, directors, the very best actors. So we're big budget, we're not, not, we're not just a little local antiquarian mm. festival. Though interestingly, from what you said, the translations these days are still mainly done by classical professors. I mean, they're, they're pretty good. Um, they, mm. they choose their professors. They don't choose... They're them. not deviating they're too no, much. Well, from they're <laughs> not, they're, they don't choose their translators just because they're um, um, uh, uh, illustrious scholars, oh, see, but because okay, they, yeah. they they will be able to produce a translation that could that be works, performed, yeah. and I have to say personally, I envy that uh, <laughs> because uh, if only I had been Italian, I'm, I, I would have aspired to translate say, for, yeah. Syri for Syracuse. It's the dream next yeah. year. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this this leads quite nicely actually to this idea of um, that, that we keep circling around on, or that you keep circling around on, of a. Uh, an identity rooted in uh, a Hellenic tradition, but also looking very much forward to to the sort of political ideologies of the day. Um, so is there a point around Sicilian nationalism here that, that can be explored? 
There is, yeah. um, there is indeed, yes. Um, I would start with um, 1914, partly because it's easier to talk about and, and partly because we have slightly more pieces of information um, and it's, it's clearer. So if you look at the um, costumes uh, in, 19, in the 1914 production of mm. the Agamemnon, one thing that you can notice and emerges very strikingly is the fact that the, all the actors wear um, costumes that recall the late um, geometric era. Yes, I mean, uh, the, the, the era of, 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 of which we see in pottery, particularly mm. from about two or three hundred years before Aeschylus. Exactly. Yeah. So, so um, they recall the, the era that we see in pottery um, on their costumes. Mm. Um, and they want to recall that kind of era, because, particularly because um, there was an Italian archaeologist called Paolo Orsi, um, there's a there's a there's an archaeological museum uh, named after him. Yeah, in, the museum in, in Syracuse, Syracuse is still the museum Paolo Orsi. Paolo Orsi, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so partly they um, uh, Romagnoli, Ettore Romagnoli, and um, had asked um, had asked uh, Duilio Cambellotti, who's the person who did the scenery, and um, he um, also partly ordered um, the costumes. Uh, had asked him to. Uh, replicate some of um, Paolo Orsi's archaeological discoveries in the costumes and um, uh, and in the scenery. And the idea was uh, that on the one hand, this was to situate the performance at a very specific time and place in history. On the other, however, it also furthered a, a wider project of a um, Sicilian, and then later it became very much Italian, Renaissance. So Orsi's discovery discoveries were revealing an entirely new world in which um, prehistoric and pre-colonial Sicily had developed culturally and socially in a way that was very similar to Mycenae. So we can see that that was to uphold on the one hand the um, um, local nature of Syracuse and at the same time um, as we can see later, what happens later with fascism in 1930, it could have been, it could be exploited to uphold Italy more generally and Italy nationalistically against other countries. Mm. Let me give you an example from very recent times of a Sicilian uh, colouring. Uh, I saw, I think it was three years ago, uh, a production of Aeschylus's Suppliants, which is a play that's not performed much, not well known. Um, directed by uh, a director called Monio Vardia and it's um, it's a play about and and I would I, and I want to say that I think it was one of the best productions of Greek tragedy I've ever seen um, and, I've seen a, and I've seen a lot um, <laughs> the the play is about how the uh, daughters of Danas the suppliants come from North Africa uh, and seek refuge in Greece and will the Greeks will the Argives take in the refugees or reject them. <coughs> so it was very current because Sicily was flooded with refugees from North Africa at the time. They, you saw them in the streets everywhere. And every night they invited 50 refugees to, to gave them free seats and they came and sat in the audience and uh, everybody knew they were there. So the, the contemporary nature of do you welcome refugees or do you reject them was very, very current, but also uh, what Avadia did, because this play is so, so little known and not a well-known myth, he had a storyteller who would introduce, who introduced the play and introduced the scenes. A storyteller who did it in the 
in in Sicilian dialect. It's a Sicilian tradition of storytelling. So he framed the Greek play with a Sicilian dialect tradition of storytelling. Um, so that you got this kind of interplay of mm. the contemporary, the Sicilian, um, and the Italian. Yes, marvelous. Um, one thing that I think we we've sort of not not covered in amongst all this is the Agamemnon itself. So the, the Aeschylus connection is is quite well established, but is there a significance to to repeatedly you know turning up to this place, donning the costumes, and and focusing so specifically on this play? I mean, I suppose point number one, there may be others, is that Agamemnon is one of the iconic uh, Greek tragedies. Uh, if you if you think which Greek tragedies are most performed, which Greek tragedies are most studied, uh, which Greek tragedies are most discussed, uh, still have uh, most to say to contemporary audiences. Um, Agamemnon stands there, uh, the Oresteia, but particularly Agamemnon, uh, along with uh, Oedipus, yeah. Sophocles, and the Antigone of Sophocles, and the Medea of Euripides, and, well, perhaps the Trojan women of Euripides or the Bacchae of Euripides. So Agamemnon is there you know, in your, your, um, your most uh, recurrent, most uh, um, fertile Greek tragedies for, for modern performances. Um, that, I would have said, is the prime reason, but the reason why Sicily turns to Aeschylus is the, the, the well-documented fact that he visited uh, Sicily at least uh, once, probably more than once, and that he actually died, and I don't, the, the Athenians themselves didn't deny this, mm. that he died at the city of Jaila, which is on the south coast, I mean, um, Syracuse is on the east coast, facing towards Greece, but Jaila was another very wealthy, important Greek city, and that's where Aeschylus died, and one day, I hope, archaeologists may find his tomb, because it could be very interesting, <laughs> wow. they have very interesting inscriptions, but they haven't found it yet. Mm. I absolutely agree. I think Aeschylus, um, one of the reasons why Aeschylus um, uh, was performed in 1914 was also because it was part of a trilogy, and the only extant trilogy um, that is um, that we have received. Um, so the excitement um, that um, uh, revolved around um, putting on a tr not just a play, but a play that was part of a trilogy, and mm. the trilogy that um, supposedly um, composed and was performed in Athens um, mm. at, uh, at the festival of the city of Dionysia. That made the Sicilians uh, Gargallo and at the same time the philologist or classical scholar um, Ettore Romagnoli, they made them excited about actually reproducing the festival itself. Mm. Uh, because it was the trilogy, and it wasn't just it was it, the, the Agamemnon was part of the trilogy. So it's so, experience so it, it, beyond the place. Yeah, it's different from standard <laughs> theatrical repertoire. It is a festival, a, a special occasion which people come to almost as pilgrims. Mm. Like, exactly. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and Gargallo later on he does um, he does say that what he had wanted to do in the first place was to recreate the right. Uh, of Greek tragedy or the rituality of Greek mm. tragedy and the idea that w with the Agamemnon um, and the choice of the Agamemnon you could do that because the Agamemnon was part of this rituality of Greek tragedy um, and um, it was easy enough then to continue with the Coeffrey and then the Humanities wasn't put on until mm. uh, 1948 but um, the idea was that the trilogy 
um, could give um, the people of Sicily uh, or and everybody everybody else who came to see the play this idea that it was it was not just a theatre. Uh, production, but it was more than a it's lot an more authentic than that. experience. It was an authentic almost, experience yeah. into what it should have been mm. or must have been mm. in Athens. I'd say still today you get the feeling at the performances that you're going to some special occasion. It's not just like going to the theatre, going to the mm. cinema. Um, thousands of people, literally thousands, uh, gather um, uh, during the course of the evening and there's a kind of festival atmosphere you walk along a street with stalls all the way along with stalls uh, partly for ice creams partly for sun hats partly for uh, archaeological relics mm. um, and and there's an an atmosphere a, a, a very strong atmosphere of, of special occasion about it and this goes on for something like 40 nights uh, mm -hmm. during uh, during June with the most wonderful view from the seating of the theatre over towards the sea and towards the, the headland of Ortigia, which is the, where the, the main ancient city of Syracuse was. And I think partly the Agamemnon was also the play of the 20th century, uh, not just because of um, Schliemann's um, newly rediscovered Mycenae, but also because it's a very feminist play, mm. or it, it was read as a very feminist play. So it doesn't actually talk about the, uh, uh, the Agamemnon, the leader of the expedition, but it talks about how a failure he's been and, yeah. and how, how coming back he's going to be, even as victorious as he is, he's going to be butchered by um, his wife Clytemnestra. Yeah. And the play is about Clytemnestra, not Agamemnon. Was that, was that even in 1914 people were seeing it that way, were they? I, I, I would assume that it would be very striking to see something like that in yeah. 1914, yeah. At, the, at the very beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. And I would assume that, yes, a, a strong character like Clytemnestra mm. in uh, patriarchal um, Sicily Mm. Uh, would make an impression, an impression mm. on yeah. on the audience. Uh, surely, I mean that is, um, I mean the place called Agamemnon, but Agamemnon is a relatively yeah. minor, relatively weak uh, character. The the two great roles, totally different, mm. but both one of the, some of the great two of the greatest women roles in the history of theatre are Clytemnestra and Cassandra. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, Clytemnestra totally defeats uh, Agamemnon and and triumphs over him and mm. glories in it mm. uh, you know there's no remorse um, and if you play just Agamemnon she ends the play triumphant yeah, yeah. I'm actually looking at a, a third image as well of um, Teresa Mariani in costume as Clytemnestra for that 1914 production uh, which separately actually exemplifies Giovanna's point around the, the geometric shapes in the, in the costumes but again just the, the, the angle of the shot it's taken slightly from below she's peering quite uh, sort of imperiously um, down at the viewer and there is this this yeah very significant sense of, of power there which you may not have seen from um, again slightly more more like fey characterization of, um, of female characters around this time. Um, another point perhaps as well around the, the Agamemnon as the play for the 20th century, which is quite nice. I think we should, we should end on that point, actually, that's marvellous. Um, this idea of unresolved business, you know, war doesn't resolve a, a problem. And this is exactly what particularly in the interwar productions would have been, would have been present in the minds of, of the audience. Um, 
so there is yeah there's a there's a huge significance there as well as that prophetic quality yes i mean the cassandra says okay yeah. you know, my city's destroyed my family's destroyed yeah. but there is there's, there's going to be more there's in, more bloodshed to there's come there's more to yeah. come yes yeah. i will be revenged yeah it's yeah it's definitely an unfinished business mm. which yeah I suppose, interestingly, thinking along those lines, you know, the chorus is enormously important, and Aeschylus has a greater role in Aeschylus mm. than it does in, uh, in later tragedy. And the chorus are of old men, well-meaning old men, but they're pretty ineffective. Um, and Clytemnestra just runs rings around them. Uh, they don't know what's going on. She does. Uh, mm. Quite an interesting insight, you might say, uh, quite an interesting angle on um, men who consider themselves to be uh, wise and sensible politicians, mm. but actually uh, haven't really got a, a grip on what's really going on. Yeah, they they don't. They're really scared, mm. and they don't really have any effects on the action. Mm. In fact, if if I could go back uh, just a second to the nineteen fourteen production, the idea of the um, twenty it, it was twenty eight men. Um, as you can see from the photograph, it's um, a crowded stage. Sorry, twenty-four men. Yeah. yeah, twenty-four. Right. So 24. actually, probably, you know, yeah. um, the chorus of Aeschylus, it, uh, the original production was either twelve or fifteen. So they've they doubled, doubled, yeah. doubled the size of the chorus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. Romagnoli's idea about the chorus was that it was it, it must have been like the comedy, uh, like the the, oh, the right. comic chorus. Um, so the same twenty-four. Yes, exactly. Yes. So the same yeah. number, um, and as you can see from the photograph. Um, they're just standing around um, the altar, uh, which you can see uh, um, at the forefront of the picture yeah. uh, of the photograph. And they just do nothing for the whole yeah. play. And the press made, hand, you know, made fun of them because they mm. said, what are you doing just standing there? Mm. But I think it gives the idea of, 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 what, of how effective um, mm. are uh, is the chorus in, in the Agamemnon. And that futility again, of, as we said, there's, there's no prevention of the bloodshed that's incoming, however wise you may be. So you can double the chorus, you can triple the chorus, and they will stand there ineffectually looking on. And in the final scene, uh, Clytemnestra's sidekick, uh, Aegisthus, the, <laughs> the man in her life who has very much kept out of the way while she does the real business, um, the chorus defy him, uh, but uh, it ends unresolved. Mm. Um, perhaps I could just say something about how it is that we have these photos. Um, they are from a, a, a collection that we have here in the APGRD in Oxford, the Archive of Performances of Greek and Roman Drama, called the Leihausen Collection. Now, Leihausen was a German uh, scholar and theatre man from the interwar period who organised an international festival of uh, Greek drama uh, to be performed by students from universities throughout Europe. Um, and then after the war, it was, a, it was again revived, um, the Delphic Festival. Um, and Leihausen, over his career, and then his wife, who carried the, on the festivals after his death, um, collected a great deal of material. Now, we knew about Leihausen because a remarkable figure here in Oxford, David Rayburn, who is now in his 90s, uh, had performed in Leihausen's uh, Delphic Festivals back in the 1940s, uh, late 40s and early 50s. So we knew something about uh, the existence of Leihausen. And it came to our attention that Leihausen, whose collection of photographs, tapes, programs, ephemera, uh, from throughout Europe and from uh, throughout the first half of the 20th century, um, his collection had gone, had been left by him to his wife and by his wife had been left to their secretary and were in a cellar 
in, I think it was Dortmund, uh, rotting in a cellar. Uh, and were in danger of actually just being uh, binned, of just being um, thrown away in a skip. And uh, Pantelis Michalakis, who's now a professor at Bristol University, but was then here with us in the archive, actually drove to the German city <laughs> where this archive was and put it all in the back of a car and drove it back to Oxford. Yeah. Um, since then, it's been to some extent felt um, that it's been um, expatriated um, and, and should have stayed in Germany, but the truth is that it might not have survived if, if it hadn't been brought here. So in this uh, extraordinary collection of material made around this particular uh, magnet who, who was so important in the university and amateur production of, uh, of Greek drama in the 20th century, in the mid-20th century, um, um, among uh, his collection are these two wonderful mm. photos. Um, we don't know quite where he got them from, um, but they're not official photos. Mm. Um, whether he took them himself or whether he was given them, um, they, 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 they're good quality um, and they give a very, very vivid idea of, the, mm. of that first performance. And potentially even there's some annotations on the back, possibly by the man himself. Yes, yeah. we managed to transcribe all of his tapes and uh, I think and, uh, 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 because he uh, had a great belief in, in, in he thought that the chorus um, spoke its uh, its lines but to the accompaniment of music. It's a particular way of, of, of doing it. And the, the Leihausen collection um, also contains some, some images from a lot of the other performances that we've that we've mentioned, so uh, particularly the, the 1930 production. And somewhere else uh, you might like to look if you want to find out a little bit more about either this performance um, or, or receptions of the Agamemnon more generally is our ebook. So we're looking at performances and receptions of the Agamemnon through a lot of archival material, some of it our own, some of it um, generously uh, provided by others. We also have some interviews, uh, including Oliver himself, actually, uh, and some performances of particular speeches from within the play. So that's perhaps uh, a slightly more easily accessible way to engage with, with those items rather than visiting us in Oxford, although you're, of course, very welcome to do that as well. Um, unless either of you have anything further to add, I think it's time to say thank you so much to both of you for your expertise and for providing such really fascinating insight into these two items. Um, we do encourage you to check out our blog post as well. We'll provide a link to that uh, alongside the podcast so you can take a look at these images as well to see, see what we've been, um, we've been discussing. But thank you very much and we hope you'll join us again. Thank you so much. Thank you.